Good morning. <clears throat> yes, after our summer fling with the Song of Songs, now we return to St. Paul's epistle to the Romans. Some of you are disappointed. Others, not so much. I don't know if you all have been reading the news much or following what's going on, but um, the world is a dangerous place, no? The world is a very chaotic and in many ways frightening place right now. I, I have been more and more troubled as I've been reading about what's going on over the Middle East. I don't know if this connects to the fact that I've been having nightmares this week. Earlier this week, Samuel L. Jackson was trying to kill one of my daughters. The deal was he's going to extort all of my money and then afterward kill her anyway. I don't know why Samuel L. Jackson, it just evidently he, that was, I figured he, I would have thought he made enough money acting. He just do snakes on a plane too. He'd make a lot more. Um, last night uh, there was a a rocket that went off uh, course and and blew up uh, just on the other side of the hill from me. And I woke up as there was uh, debris falling all over me. I don't even want to talk about the one that I had the other night. And so, in times where there is not peace. Indeed, in times when there is a great feeling of need for peace, it's all the more pressing for us when we think about what it is for us to have peace with God. It's hard for us to think about having peace with our enemies. Sometimes it's hard to think of us of us as having peace with our enemies in the next cubicle, let alone over in other countries. But then there's peace with God. Paul declares in chapter 5 of Romans, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And he says, therefore, and the therefore refers to what he has been saying in the first four chapters. And in one sense, that might seem counterintuitive. Because after all, in the first four chapters of Romans, he lays out a whole lot of reasons why we might not think we would have peace with God, doesn't he? After he starts with his introductions and talking about his plans to come and visit Rome, 
He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. First the Jew, then the Gentile. In that gospel, God's righteousness is revealed. It's a righteousness from faith to faith. Just as it's written, the just will live by faith. But he then goes on to demonstrate how we are not the just. We are not the righteous. The wrath of God, in fact, Paul says, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And he goes on to show how even though people know what they ought to do, they have some sense of how God might be honored. They don't do that. In fact, they reject Him. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men, birds, animals, reptiles. And because people did this, God, anticipating Burger King, said, have it your way. Fine. Your hearts have sinful desires and you want to follow those? Okay. Go ahead. See where that leads you. Paul says, among other things, those sinful desires gave them over to sexual impurity the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshipped and they served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because they did that, God gave them over to those shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men they received in their own flesh the due penalty for their perversion. And what's more, since they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. So they've been become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. In fact, the... They have they managed to make up ways of doing evil that nobody's figured out before. Even though they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but they also approve of those who practice them. So they make up new ways of doing evil. They know they shouldn't do it, but they give their approval to the people who who do. They know better. Yet they do what they do. And as we talked about when we studied this last year, there are two very important things to keep in mind about chapter 1 of Romans. Does anybody remember what they are? Number one, it's a setup. Right? Because what Paul does in chapter 1 of Romans is he goes, he catalogs all of these sins, these wickednesses, all these nasty things about these people who drive 55 in the left lane of the beltway.
And he does it so that he's got his hearers cheering along with him. Yeah, Paul, you tell him, you tell what those wicked, evil, nasty Gentiles do. They're bad. And then he says in chapter 2, now you. You who have, you have no excuse who pass judgment on someone else because at whatever point you judge the other, you who pass judgment are doing the very same thing. So to everybody who's cheering along, everybody who's saying, yeah, you get him, Paul. You tell him. He's saying, guess what? I'm telling you to. So now everybody's in the dock. God's judgment against those who do these things is based on truth. So guess what? Here's the truth. If you, mere human, are passing judgment on them and yet you're doing the very same things, how on earth do you think you're going to escape God's judgment? Because the second thing we have to remember about Romans 1 is what? That doesn't mean it isn't true. Just because it's a setup. Just because Paul is using this rhetorical device to make sure his hearers are going to be humiliated. Just because he's using this rhetorical jujitsu doesn't mean that everything he says in chapter 1 isn't true. No, it is true. It's true of wicked Gentiles. It's true of wicked Jews. It's true of wicked people. It's true of all of us. In some ways, he says, it's even worse for those of you who are Jews because it's like you're showing contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience. You've experienced God's kindness. You've known what it is to be part of his community, of of, of his people. You, you know what it is to receive the gift of Torah, to, to be called apart. But God's kindness isn't supposed to lead you to judge others. God's kindness isn't supposed to lead you to be smug and complacent. God's kindness is there to lead you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness, your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. If you want to go by those standards, guess what? You're not going to come out well. Because God's going to give everybody according to what He's done. Those people like you, He says, who are self-seeking, who reject the truth, who follow evil, are going to be the recipients of wrath and anger. There's going to be trouble and distress for every man who does evil. First the Jew, then the Gentile. Glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First the Jew, then the Gentile. God... God doesn't play favorites. God doesn't hold different people to different standards. The fact is, he says, everybody who sins apart from Torah is going to perish apart from Torah. Everybody who sins under Torah is going to be judged by Torah. It's not, after all, those who hear Torah who are righteous in God's sight, just because you hear it doesn't get you anywhere. No, it's those who obey Torah who will be declared righteous. Look at Gentiles who don't, don't have Torah. When they do, by nature, the things that are required by Torah, it's like they demonstrate that they're Torah for themselves. Even though they don't have it, 
They show that God wrote those requirements of Torah on human hearts. Their consciences bear witness. There is going to be a day, Paul says, when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. As his gospel declares. Nobody is going to get off of Scott's free. Nobody is going to slide in on a technicality. So, Paul says, look, if you call yourself a Jew, you think you've you got a great relationship with God, you rely on Torah, you know your, what His will is, you can approve what is superior because you are well-trained in Torah, guess what? You're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, you're a light for those in darkness. You think you're an instructor of the foolish, teacher of infants, because you have in Torah the embodiment of knowledge and truth, all these things you think you all that. So if you're going to go teach others, how come you're not teaching yourself? You, you preach against stealing, but do you steal? You say people shouldn't commit adultery, but what about you? You abhor idols, but then you rob temples. You brag about Torah, but then don't you dishonor God by breaking it? As it is written. And this may be the most powerful condemnation that you could issue. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That was the point, right? That's why God called a people. God called Abraham. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And the whole point of that was that they would what? That they would enjoy God's blessings and look down on everybody else? No. He says, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. And he put them in the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of Delaware because everybody to get from any place to any place else and the ancient world had to go through where God was putting them. There were to be living billboards for the one true God. They were going to enjoy peace and prosperity, safety, justice, health. God was going to give them everything they needed. His Torah to tell them how to live. He was going to protect them from their enemies. He was going to fight for them. Everything they needed. So that when people came through, when they traded with them, when they came to share knowledge, they would say, what is it about you? What is it about your God that means that you live differently? They were called to be the way that God would demonstrate His greatness to a world that was in rebellion against Him. That's what He called His people to be. But instead of that, instead of making God look good, They trashed his reputation. It would be like you hiring a marketing company to advertise your business. And as a result of their work, everybody hated you and stopped buying your stuff. See, look, Paul says, look, circumcision has value if you observe the law. If you're going to follow Torah and you're going to follow its requirements, great. Be circumcised. But see, if you break the law, being circumcised isn't going to help you. 
It's not like that's your ticket to get in. It's not like you show up and wave that around and you're admitted. No. Look, I mean, even if people who aren't literally physically circumcised keep the requirements of Torah, they get regarded as though they were. But the one who is not circumcised physically yet obeys the law is the one who's going to condemn you. Even though you have Torah, even though you got circumcised, but you broke it. See, a person is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly. He's not a, one of God's people just by doing the things that God's people do, as Billy Graham put it. Sitting in a garage doesn't make you a car. Anyone that's sitting in a church makes you a Christian. He put it the other way, which is why he was such an effective communicator, unlike me. No, a person's a Jew if he's one inwardly. Circumcision that matters is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. The person who gets praised for that isn't praised by men. He's praised from God. So what advantage, you're going to ask, is there in being a Jew? I mean, are you saying the whole exercise was pointless? No, of course not, Paul says. I mean, going back to the first thing, they, they were entrusted with the very words of God. And just because some didn't have faith, that doesn't nullify God's faithfulness. No. Would God be true and every man a liar? See, if our unfaithfulness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what, what are we going to say about that? Are we going to say God's unjust? No. Hell no. If that were so, how could God judge the word? Somebody's going to argue, well, if I mess up and then that makes God look better, then how come I'm at fault? Right? Because I messed up and made God look good. God should be pleased with that. No. That is stupid, Paul says. Are we any better? He says, no. Jew and Gentile alike are all under sin. Doesn't matter. Nobody's righteous. Not even one. Nobody understands. Nobody seeks God. They've all turned away. They've together become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throats are open. Graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways in the way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And we know, Paul says, we know whatever Torah says, it says to those who are under Torah, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. So therefore, nobody is going to be declared righteous in his sight by observing Torah. In fact, what Torah does is it makes us conscious of sin. Is anybody feeling any peace at this point? I think that's what Paul's trying to do. And any, any source of peace we might try to find in our own abilities, our own character, It's not going to get you there. But, Paul says, now 
God's righteousness, apart from Torah, has been made known. And that's the kind of righteousness to which Torah and the prophets testify. This righteousness of God comes through Jesus Christ's faithfulness on behalf of all who believe. See, there's no difference, Paul says. Everybody sins. Everybody falls short of the glory of God. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. But may be justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. And He did this, Paul says, to demonstrate His justice. Because it's not like God didn't notice all the things that were going on. It's not like He wasn't going to take care of business. No, He, in His forbearance, left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. But He did it to demonstrate His justice now at the present time so as to be both just and the one who justifies those who have the faith of Jesus. So, if you're going to be boasting about anything, you're an idiot. You, you, want, to, you want your credit for observing Torah? No, no, no. No, no, it's, it's faith. We maintain, Paul says, that a person is justified by faith apart from following Torah. You know what, are, are you suggesting the one true God of the universe is just the God for Jews? No. Everybody. He's God of everybody. If he's God of the whole universe, that includes Gentiles, doesn't it? Really, there's only one God, and he's going to justify both the circumcised and the uncircumcised by the same faith. So then do we nullify Torah? Does this faith wipe everything out that came before? Does that mean that what God did in the past didn't matter? Was irrelevant? No. No, we, we uphold Torah. And then Paul spends that whole lovely chapter 4 talking about just how that worked out in Abraham's story. Right? I mean, look, Abraham, God called him. God said, uh, you, uh, he had this faith that was credited to him as righteousness. Remember that story? Right? Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. And then what happened? Then he got circumcised. See, if circumcision was the ticket, Abe would have had to get circumcised beforehand. But this faith was credited to him as righteousness before he went and did the chop-chop. So, he is the father of all who believe who have, but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. Yeah, he's also the father of the circumcised. The circumcised Jews who not only are literally physically circumcised, but who walk in the kind of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. See, it wasn't through Torah that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world. But it was through the righteousness of faith. After all, if those who live by Torah are heirs, and if only those who live by Torah are heirs, then faith has no value. 
The promise is worthless. And after all, Torah brings, brings wrath. And you don't have any Torah, then you don't get the transgression. But see, the promise comes by faith. So that it may be by grace, so that it may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not just those who are of Torah, not just Abraham's offspring according to the flesh, not just Jews, but also to those of us who are of the faith of Abraham. He's the father of us all. As it's written, I have made you a father of many nations. Many nations means more than just one, right? I mean, I don't want to work the reading comprehension part too hard. All of them. Not just Jews. He's our Father in the sight of God in whom He believed. The God who gives life to the dead calls things that are not as though they were. And remember, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed he, and therefore became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be without weakening in his faith. Paul's telling the story generously at this point. He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. He was 100 years old after all. Sarah's womb was also dead. She was 90, but he didn't waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith. He gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. That's why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words that was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins. And he was raised to life for our justification. See, we're not going to get that peace with God through our own efforts. We're not going to get that peace with God by belonging to the right club, by listening to the right stuff, by behaving ourselves to a degree that's acceptable to a certain crowd. That's not going to get us peace. That's going to get us the shovel of wisdom from the Most Holy God. That's going to get us a slap on the face that's going to get us humiliated. No, Paul says, it's since we have been justified through faith that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into that grace in which we now stand. Tense in Greek is perfect. It doesn't say we might gain access at some point. It doesn't say we can hope to gain access by faith. No. We have gained access, Paul says, by faith into this grace in which we now stand. having been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're going to be dealing with this year 
in chapters 5 through 8, is the reality that so often we don't see the evidence of that in our lives. So much of our lives is testimony not to peace with God, but rebellion against God. So much of it is testimony to the fact that we are justified, but are growing into that reality. So often, we have to be reminded that we have peace with God because we really don't feel like we do. The question is not whether you feel you have peace with God. Paul doesn't say, therefore, since we've been justified, we feel like we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. No, objectively, you have a peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ if you are in Christ. Whether you feel it, whether at a given moment you look like it, if you are in Christ, you have peace with God because you have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. That's one of the reasons that we take communion together every month is as a reminder that however you feel when you come to receive the elements, they are the gifts of God for the people of God. Christ's blood was shed for you. His body was broken for you. By His faithfulness, you have gained access into this grace in which we all now stand. And because He gave Himself, therefore we have peace with God. And along with 2,000 years of people who can claim this promise, however imperfectly we see it being realized in our lives, our own lives, the lives of our community. We come to His table to receive these gifts. Let me invite you to stand. As we always do, we'll recite the creed together and then I'd invite you to come forward and receive the elements. The red is wine, the white is grape juice, the bread is unleavened. invite you to take the elements, bring them back to your seat, and then we will partake of them together. But first, as we prepare with eager anticipation to say the words of the Nicene Creed together, which for centuries people have read, (laughs) many of them having memorized it. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one God, one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. 
For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. <laughs> 